Good morning. You're just in time. Welcome to the St. Gabriel Cafe, your sacred space to sip on today's local blend of faithful encouragement. Let's start our day together. Good morning. Come on in. Pull up a chair. I'm Dave Orsborn. And I'm Amanda Miller. And we are thrilled to have you here with us in the St. Gabriel Cafe, our live and local morning show. Cam Clutter, as always, is our faithful barista. And we're very excited to have our good friends Mike and Peggy Hartshorn with us here in the cafe this morning. They'll be sharing stories from their marriage and family and how they've served together in various ministries from Marriage Encounter to, of course, their unwavering commitment to the pro-life movement. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning, Dave. Can you start us with a prayer? In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for another day. Thank you for your goodness and for your blessings. Lord, we ask that at the start of this week that you just make us ever attentive to the ways that you're calling us to love you to grow in relationship with you, to love those around us, and to persevere, to persevere in our faith, in the work that you have called us to, to the love that you have called us to, and, and especially to persevere in those times that are difficult, those times that maybe we struggle, but above all, just, just in faith and docility and to follow you. Lord, we ask for these graces and all those graces that we need for this day, for this week. We lift all of our intentions to you through the intercession of Mary. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Good Monday morning. Good Monday morning. <laughs> the sun is up. I'm excited. We can talk about the weather. <laughs> <laughs> we have permission we to have talk permission about the weather. Because now, <laughs> now I'm excited about it. <laughs> How's your weekend? Um, it was lovely. I uh, actually got connected with a new friend. So we went out to have coffee, got to know mm -hmm. her. Mm -hmm. So that was lovely. And then connected with an old friend. So it's just been a weekend of reconnecting and um, also rest. Enjoying hot beverages. That's right. Staying out of the weather. <laughs> How about you? It was nice. It was nice. Just, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, quiet time, actually. Mm, Hung yeah. out at home. One more car issue. Oh, no. I feel like this is just a never-ending cycle in your life, Dave. I'm so sorry. It, it real, yeah. Going uh, uh, out Saturday morning for some errands, and I heard a clunk in my door, and it ended up being the probably the motor for the uh, power window. So, the I mean, blessing is... you don't is, need your window this time of year. So. Well, it, it's in the up position. Praise be to God, yeah. right? You know, so the window didn't drop. It's mm -hmm. kind of stuck in the up position. So Count your blessings where you can get them. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, today the church celebrates a day of prayer for the legal protection of unborn children. Mm -hmm. So at 1030 this morning, Bishop Fernandez will celebrate the annual Respect Life Mass at St. Joseph Cathedral, which will be carrying live on St. Gabriel Radio. Then after the Mass, there's the annual Roe Remembrance event at the Ohio State House, and all are invited. I looked at the collect uh, for Mass this morning. It's just a, a beautiful opening prayer for the Mass. God, our Creator, we give thanks to you 
who alone have the power to impart the breath of life as you form each of us in our mother's womb. Grant, we pray, that we whom you have made stewards of creation may remain faithful to the sacred trust and constant in safeguarding the dignity of every human life. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. And also some beautiful words. I'm looking at the Magnificat for today. And St. John Paul II's reflection from Evangelium Vitae. Just powerful, powerful uh, words on the gospel of life. And our saint, John Paul II, says, The gospel of life is not simply a reflection, however new and profound, on human life. Nor is it merely a commandment aimed at raising awareness and bringing about significant changes in society. Still less is it an illusory promise of a better future. The gospel of life is something concrete and personal, for it consists in the proclamation of the very person of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? It's the very person of Jesus, his incarnation Mm -hmm. shows God's love and how much by becoming man does God love man Mm -hmm. and our image and likeness, our um, inherent dignity is reflected in Jesus himself. Yeah. Yeah. I circled a couple words there in that passage that you read, um, that it's personal. And, and before he's describing how it's not just a reflection, it's not just a promise, um, but personal, very relational. And yeah, just how beautiful that, yeah, God came in the form of man to suffer, die for us and bring us into union with him. This is not just when we have the opportunity to read and dive into sacred scripture, it's a personal encounter. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when we talk about the pro-life movement and um, we'll be discussing this with uh, Mike and Peggy Hartshorn, at its essence, it's rooted in the relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Out of that is born the love for our fellow man and, and serving and loving those that are most vulnerable. And that's a, that's a big part of the gospel message. Yeah, I was just thinking last week we we had Kelly Henderson and Mike Mark Huddy on the show. I think it was Wednesday that we had them on and really had a beautiful conversation surrounding a lot of the teaching of Catholic social teaching in the church. If you missed that show or missed any of our shows, I feel like the Lord has been doing a bit of a common theme over the last week and this coming week. Um, all revolving around the pro-life movement and the dignity of the human person. If you missed any of those shows, you can find them all on our website, but really just continually struck in my heart that like these efforts that we do and and what John Paul is speaking to here, this, this gospel of life that we proclaim isn't just something that we proclaim because it makes us feel good. He says, and I don't have the Magnificat in front of me, but he says something along the lines of um, it's not just proclaiming like 
a, a hope for the future, right? Well, that's a really like good thing to think about even by itself, just hope for the future. Well, everybody needs hope for the future. But what he's saying is it's sure it's that, but it's more than that mm-hmm. because it's the person of Jesus Christ. And um, I think what it all boils down to and, and what keeps striking me in all of these conversations that we've had is um, it's not just, it, it's not, like the Lord doesn't limit our efforts as a church to just because we feel good about doing them or because they just proclaim hope or because it's the right thing to do or whatever, but because we have had this encounter with Jesus because he has changed our lives significantly in some kind of way. I think I find at least for myself and and I think I speak for most Catholics who get involved in things that um, you can't help but get involved because because the Lord has convicted me. Why would I not then go out? Um, just like the apostles, you know, mm-hmm. that he he encounters them and, and then they come to him and ask him that question. Where are you staying? You know, it's not it's not. Hey, can I follow you? It's like I'm following you. So just tell me where you're going already, <laughs> mm. you know, um, and just being so convicted by it that you're that you're already being sent. Cam, that is a splendid paraphrase Thanks. of St. John Paul II's <laughs> words. Uh, he, the, um, Pope John Paul II continues, through the words, the actions, and the very person of Jesus, man is given the possibility of knowing the complete truth concerning the value of human life. From this source, he receives in particular the capacity to accomplish this truth perfectly, that is, to accept and fulfill completely the responsibility of loving and serving, of defending and promoting human life. Mm. Good words. Good words. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking this morning, uh, at least getting into uh, Mike and Peggy's story and uh, see how their love for each other blossomed and then overflowed into their uh, love for others so stay with us we're going to be back in just a couple minutes with mike and peggy hartshorn here in the saint gabriel cafe Oh, good Jesus, you are the Most High God, everlasting and always living. You have shown us the way to the Father and sent the Holy Spirit to guide us. We implore thy most sacred heart to have mercy on us in this time of need. Bless and protect the vulnerable. Give hope to all and fill our hearts with confidence in your divine mercy. Be our joy in the midst of suffering and our stability in the midst of uncertainty. Your forgiveness we seek, your love we need your protection we implore. Forgive our sins and heal our wounds. Strengthen any weakness of faith and make us strong so as to give witness to your glory. Keep far from us any illness, pestilence, or harm. You are our refuge. You are our comfort. You are our hope. Through the intercession of Our Lady, health of the sick, we come to your most sacred heart and beseech your protection and blessing. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Amen. Do you have a minute for lasting happiness? Living virtuously is the way to freedom, happiness, and holiness. To grow in virtue, 
we must learn about it, practice it, and persevere in it. This is what the saints have achieved with excellence. An excellent example of patriotism is seen in St. Louis IX. He lived patriotism heroically by paying due honor and respect to his country, serving it willingly as the King of France. He set up shelters and hospitals for the poor and sick. He led two crusades, established a university, and built beautiful churches. He dedicated himself to prayer that his country would carry out God's will. Let us ask St. Louis IX to pray for us, that we too may grow in patriotism. Educate yourself in virtue. Learn more at educationinvirtue.com. I'm Lori Crock, and this is a Holy and Healthy Minute. Words from the saints teach and inspire us. One of my favorite saints is St. Joseph, who does not have any recorded words in scripture. That is precisely what makes him special. In him, we see a man serving God and his neighbor with quiet, holy action. We see him caring for Mary and Jesus and living out the virtue of obedience to God and to the mores of their time. St. Pope John Paul II said, St. Joseph was a just man, a tireless worker, the upright guardian of those entrusted to his care. May he always guard, protect, and enlighten families. May we emulate St. Joseph's heroic obedience to God, his strength in caring for his family, and give thanks for his unique role in the salvation of mankind. Let us pray. Father God, open our eyes to the beautiful virtue of obedience as modeled by St. Joseph. Grant that we too are obedient to you in our vocation. Amen. Welcome back, friends, to the St. Gabriel Cafe. I'm Amanda Miller. I'm Dave Orsborn, and we're thrilled to have with us in the cafe this morning, Mike and Peggy Hartshorn. Good morning, Hartshorns. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here. Uh, I'm thrilled for this conversation. Um, so your story begins first grade right. at St. <laughs> Mary's School in Lancaster. Lancaster, right. Lancaster right. Ohio. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Your eyes met at the chalkboard. And... Uh, but uh, we didn't really notice each other. The, you know how they have that latent period of your uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. of your development. We we didn't notice each other much till well, the school was so big in those days. We had two classes, and and our class was it was then and still is the largest ever. Uh -huh, but they had Saint Mary's or now Fisher Catholic. So class. many people that we didn't really start noticing 90, each other. I think we had ninety one. Yeah, okay. in our graduating class, yeah. But mm -hmm. we started noticing each other in about the seventh grade. As boys and girls often do. As, right. That's right. right. We were following right. the kind of the normal pattern. <laughs> but uh, you're born a day apart also. Uh -huh, right. Yes. Coming up, our birthday's in February. February 18th and 19th, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and actually, that was one of the ways we... I finally moved things along a little bit. You know, in those days, <laughs> girls never called boys on the phone. You couldn't do that. You didn't ever, um, what should I initiate. say? Initiate <laughs> anything, right. The boys were the ones that uh, needed to do that. And in a leadership role in the relationship, I think that's a good thing. But yeah, Maybe anyway. that's where the term ladies-in-waiting comes that's from. That's right? it, yes. And, and I was a little slow on the uptake. Yes, <laughs> yes. But, uh, but I suggested to his twin sister that we have a joint birthday party. Okay. I thought, well, maybe, because in those days you did roll up the rugs. You know, you had sock hops, you danced with each other, and listened to some romantic music on the, on the uh, record player. 
<laughs> and so that was the first time we really danced together was our birthdays when we were turned 18. And, and Peggy squeezed my hand. <laughs> and I thought, did she squeeze my hand? I don't know if she really squeezed my hand. So, so it still I did, took I didn't him a really, while. I didn't really respond. <laughs> so you were trying to send a message, I Peggy. was trying to send yeah. a message. He finally got it in time that we went together to the senior prom, right. which was really neat. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, but we both decided on different colleges. I went to California mm -hmm. to a Dominican college in San Rafael, and you went to Xavier Jesuit College in uh -huh. Cincinnati. Right. So we wrote letters every every other day. We promised each other we would have a letter in the mailbox, and mm -hmm. you know, every other day I would go to those little cubby holes at my college dorm, and there would be a letter from Mike, and <laughs> I did the same. So we, it, it, that's an, a very good way to develop a relationship, actually. Mm -hmm. And we did find out, I'd say, that we were better in a way of expressing our feelings in writing than we were mm -hmm. orally. And I think that's true for a lot of people. You mm -hmm. can really give some thought to what you want to say. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and well, and you couldn't make frequent phone calls at that point either. I mean, no, you, you could, run no. up the phone it bill was, pretty quickly. It was, yeah. There was a pay phone in our college dorm, and you had to wait in line to use it. So, yeah, we didn't talk on the phone very much. For, for, for our young friends, there used to be um, these things called pay phones where you actually had to put money right, money in, right. in, the, in the slot. As, as Dave stares at Amanda and I. And yeah. And we wonder if you know what we're talking about. <laughs> Waiting then, in line for the phone. And, it's and, not yes, in your no. pocket. And the operator would interrupt and say, please deposit another 25 cents or so. And if you didn't have the money. As you're gushing your heart. Right. Yeah. They, what? They, and that, well, we've had some, we don't need to get into that, but yes, talking on a pay phone or, or a phone with lots of other people around you really does uh, impact what you can say. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. So uh, anyway. But so that, you stuck to the letters. We stuck to the letters for the most part. And, but that also, I mean, it, it we, we didn't have in a sense, a normal courtship where you see each other in person a lot. Mm -hmm. When we did see each other, when I was home, which was infrequent because airline travel was very expensive in those days. So mainly in the summer, you know, or some really romantic occasion. I, I flew back one time for your, uh, uh, one of your senior mm -hmm. events, senior prom event at or, Xavier. Or I came to, Peggy was in San Francisco, one of the most romantic, at least at that time, mm -hmm. uh, cities, you know, in the U.S., and so that was it was sort of a fairy tale romance, but it wasn't real. Yeah. I mean, we were we were living that when we saw each other uh, without daily living. So uh, when we got married, it was somewhat of a shock to us yeah. that this wasn't going to continue. <laughs> this romance period. Right, right. That's why marriage encounter was so important to us. Mm -hmm. We didn't go on our weekend till nine years after we were married. And learned that it's very normal to go through stages of romance, mm -hmm. disillusionment, and joy mm -hmm. in your relationship. Did you marry then soon after graduation? Yeah, I was, uh, I was uh, commissioned the second lieutenant, and one day graduated the next day, and we got married the next day. Yeah, so <laughs> two days it, after yeah. he graduated, yeah. okay. we got married. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was in a hurry. Yeah. And where, where did you serve then, Mike? Well, I didn't have to serve. Uh, they, I applied to law school, and they gave me a deferment for law school. So it wasn't until after that okay. that uh, we went to Fort Sill as a couple, which was a fun. And then we were back into the romantic stage in Fort <laughs> Sill. So, you know, they paid you in $20 bills, and we had a magic drawer where that money went. And uh, 
you know, the officers <laughs> club. So that was another great period, romantic period, uh, romantic yeah. period in our lives. Right. Hmm. <laughs> what made that period romantic? Well, we, we, Peggy loved the military, number Mike one. <laughs> so maybe uh, Peggy yeah. should have served. <laughs> she would have been a, a good a good officer, that's for sure. I think it was because of, you know, we just depended on each other. Mm, you know, that's we're, true. we're there and we could depend on each other. We didn't have any outside influences, which was a good time in our marriage for us. Mm-hmm. Where's Fort Sill? Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah. Lot in Oklahoma. It's the largest army base in the United one, States. One of, one of the largest, mm-hmm. at least, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mike and Peggy Hartshorn here in the cafe with us this morning. We're talking about their courtship in the early years of their marriage. So, when did, um, so Mike, you're in law school. Right. And have, have you started your graduate? Yes. Af- right after we got married. Uh, well, we got married in June. Uh, we had that summer, we worked together as park leaders. Uh, in the Columbus City Parks. And then that fall, we started at graduate school. I went to the, uh, was getting a PhD in English and Mike started into law school. Okay. So that was, that was a stressful period, I would say, because, uh, you know, we both, it was so challenging what we were doing. And later I actually took a stress test. They, in those days, they came up with some kind of a, they do today, apparently, Cam shaking his head. It was 10 questions. You know, how many of these things have happened in your life uh, recently? And some of them were, you got married. Yes. Uh, you moved to a new city. Yes. Uh, you had major illness in your family. At that point, my father was dying of cancer. Mm. Yes. Uh, there were of the 10 things I answered yes to about eight of them. <laughs> and so we really were in a pretty stressful period. Um, uh, so, so that was really from what, 1969 to you graduated in 72. I got my PhD in 74. So, and my father died of cancer and we were trying to adjust again to marriage where it was, you know, we were in the disillusionment phase, uh, of our relationship. And um, that's when Roe v. Wade occurred, January 22nd, 1973. And uh, I think, I hadn't thought of it till just now, but I think that brought us both back to one of the things that attracted us and still does, is how much our basic values and beliefs and faith in the Lord and everything that we grew up with in our families and in our in our grade school and in our high school, in our colleges, um, you know, we both knew when that occurred, it, it brought us together in many ways again, I would Th- say. I think it mm-hmm. reaffirmed our Catholic roots also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We could look back on our school and, and some of the predictions that were made at the time that we didn't really uh, think were possible, like yeah. ab- abortion and euthanasia, mm-hmm. you know. I but, had a, yeah. I had a um, favorite ethics teacher in, in college who, when, uh, when California legalized abortion in 1969, actually 68, it was the very first state to legalize abortion. And, um, and there were billboards going up, and uh, our ethics professor said to this class of, of Catholic women, mark my words, in five years, abortion will be legal all over the United States. And we did, there was a gasp. <gasps> And that was in 1969, beginning of 69, right before we graduated. And, you know, while I certainly respected that prediction, we then, once we got married, we, we just 
had to jump into everything that, as I mentioned, kind of that disillusionment phase. And, mm-hmm. and it was so stressful for us those few years that we really weren't thinking about much except keeping our heads above water. Starting new jobs. And yes, we, we started were, new jobs. But uh-huh. we were both grounded uh, mm-hmm. very much in our Catholic faith and mm-hmm. our Catholic values. And so, so when what, that yeah. decision... Well, I was going to ask you yeah. about the uh, kind of the legal and um, the landscape around abortion and the pro-life at that time. So Roe v. Wade didn't just like surprise anybody. It, you could see the trend right. towards towards that a Supreme Court decision at that point. But well, we weren't we weren't we weren't sh- aware of it as much as we should have right. been. We were mm-hmm. busy with our careers and, mm-hmm. and uh, but it was a shock. I mean we knew what was happening in California and in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So yes, we and knew my sister Susan actually yeah. was involved. She yeah. had gotten involved in Cleveland Right to Life, mm-hmm. and she had sent us a brochure, the first the first ever color brochure that was developed in the pro-life movement. It was called Life or Death. Uh, it was written by Dr. Jack Wilkie and his wife Barbara from Cincinnati, sure. who were founders of yeah. Ohio Right to Life and National Right to Life, eventually International Right to Life. Yeah. It's called kind of the grandfather of the Pioneers. pro-life movement. Yeah. And um, and they did this color brochure. Barbara's family was in the printing business. So they printed almost all of the early literature in the pro-life movement. And my sister Susan had sent us a copy in the mail. Remember when <laughs> that was... <laughs> Uh, and <laughs> I don't have to explain mail here, do I? I use the post, okay? okay. <laughs> I mail things. But it, it, it was a shock. Yeah. Uh, Peggy was driving in the car, and she heard on the radio uh, the decision of Roe v. Wade. Mm. And she called me. I was a, a new attorney and asked me, you know, is this possible? And could I get a copy of an opinion? In those days, they had slip opinions. And we were just a, I was just about a block from the courthouse, so I, I got the opinion, and we were both, I think shocked is a good word, mm-hmm. about we totally. couldn't believe it. Yeah. yeah, that all of a sudden this had happened, you know. Uh, and it, it seemed, I can remember thinking when I heard it on the radio, how could this happen in my country? Mm-hmm. Because not only was it so contrary to our faith, but also in those days, you know, we we memorized the preamble of the Constitution and the right. beginning of the Bill of Rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these is the right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And I thought, how could this be happening in my country? And actually, I just got back from Washington, D.C. Uh, with our daughter-in-law and granddaughter and we were touring this first time our granddaughter has been to Washington touring those the beautiful monuments you know to our founding fathers and that founding and reading all those inspiring words about the dignity of the person and uh, that that was so much the root of our country even though as Martin Luther King said it was a it was a check written that was not totally funded at that time. <laughs> yeah, but, Mike, but Mike those... and Peggy Hartshorn here in the cafe with us. We're talking about uh, the early pro-life movement soon yeah. after uh, Roe v. Wade. Was there such a thing at that point as uh, pregnancy help centers? Well, there was, but not in Columbus at the time. There was there was uh, Columbus Right to Life, which mm-hmm. which Peggy called immediately and and. Uh, and we both became involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, Is that how you started volunteering then? Yes. Right. We, I right. looked in the phone book. <laughs> I 
I knew there was right to life. We used to have have phone books. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) And there it was, Columbus right to life. You looked in alphabetical order and there it was. (laughs) Start looking at Cam. He's younger than I am. (laughs) They don't have, I guess they have them in some places. uh, Well, actually there was birthright and we'll have to say that some of the early pregnancy help organizations were called birthright. We still have a birthright here in Columbus, founded in Canada. Um, and they were really focused on, and still are, pregnancy support. Uh, so help for the Not woman. as much as an alternative to abortion, but right. to support right. women that were in need. Yeah. Who, and who have decided to continue their pregnancy. Okay. So it wasn't focused as much on crisis intervention for the person who might be thinking about abortion right. or perhaps even on her way toward an abortion, had already made that decision. Uh, so, um, we didn't know about the fact that in 1971, there was an organization founded right here in Toledo, uh, Ohio called alternatives to abortion international founded in 71. And they were keeping track of all of the emerging pregnancy centers in the country and around the world. Mm. Uh, birthrights were included in that list. The very first list they published at the beginning of 1972 had about 175 listings. A lot of them were just names of individuals who were saying, we need to start something. We need to have a place where women can come. And most of those centers, actually in the beginning, the birthright, the birthrights were very connected to local pro-life OBGYNs, of course, mm-hmm. because in those days, you had to go to a doctor to have a pregnancy test, and he or she sent it off to a lab. And so you had to be working directly with a doctor. So Catholic doctors were very much involved in those days. They were really pioneers, like you mentioned, Dr. Wilkie. But there were lots of others. Dr. John Hillebrand up in Toledo, who was one of the founders of Alternative Abortion International. And one of the wonderful stories that I just found out about recently, uh, our Bishop Fernandez, his father uh, and mother, who were um, immigrants from uh, India, actually settled in Toledo, and his father was an OBGYN. So mm. we, we think, we've talked about this, they must have known each other, they had to have known each other. <laughs> right. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Uh, but God was, and the Holy Spirit, just inspiring people all over the country, all over the world even. Um, they knew that help had to be provided. Once abortion became legal, women would be pressured and coerced. And I think at the time, at least for myself, it was more of an educational matter. You know, I thought logically that if people, there was some thought, well, is this a developing baby? No, it's, it, you can't tell it from a frog. They had certain jars and you had to, at the highest state fair. And so our thought, my thought was, well, let's educate people. Mm. And once we educate people that this is a human life and it's developing, you know, abortion will go away. Mm. Well, that wasn't the case, obviously. Mm-mm. Education didn't matter at, mm-hmm. you know, to a lot of people at the time. And as, as the numbers of abortion rose, and by 1981, we were ha- that was the, probably the peak of the numbers of abortions in this country. We were having about one and a half million abortions every year. And, um, Over the course of nine years then, yes, right? It, it, well, yes, in 73, it so really, years, yeah. really uh, accelerated wow. into the 80s. So in the 80s, we had a period of several years where we, there were over 1.5 million abortions in the country. Um, so, so people were 
confused about, you know, uh, we're told this is just a blob of protoplasm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, this is not. A, and the Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade said no one can agree when human life begins. Well, that wasn't really true. Um, but people were told this. M abortion became a big money-making business and still is, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, yes, there was a lot of lack of information. Education really was needed. But, but even then, and even in the 90s, when ultrasound became common, uh, in pregnancy centers, as well as, you know, uh, there were there were recreational ultrasounds. You could stop by a storefront and have a, pictures of your developing baby. By that time, this is my perception, people had been so wounded by abortion. So many abortions had taken place already. So many people were involved in abortions, if not having them themselves, had taken people to clinics, had encouraged people to have abortion, had stood by and not intervened when they should have, had not taken responsibility when they should have. And that woundedness, because the instinct, the, the, the paternal instinct, the maternal instinct is so strong that God has given us that my, my perception is that we had such a wounded society by that time, such a wounded culture, and we still do today, mm -hmm. that logic <laughs> and education and reason it, it, it's not, it's not all that's needed. You know, healing right. is, is needed and recognizing and repenting and admitting and, and, uh, seeing the truth and the beauty of life in all of its beauty. Um, that sometimes people are blocked from seeing that because of, of woundedness. And I, I think, uh, our view began to change practically when we started to house pregnant women. I was, yeah, yeah, I was going to ask yeah. you about yeah. that. Mike and Peggy Hartshorn here with us in the cafe. We've talked about uh, pregnancy help centers, but you you two took a very courageous step into opening your home. I I don't know if it was courageous. We obviously, <laughs> when you do something like that, you get more out of it than you put mm -hmm. into it. And we had delightful. We had we housed twelve women all together mm -hmm. over the years. And of those 12, it just so happens that 50% or six placed for adoption and six parented. And we still have contact with a lot of those women today and, and the kids. And so- When we, was this? Was this in the 90s? 75 so, is okay. when we started. Then. Oh my goodness, yeah. okay. So 73 was Roe v. Wade. We became involved in Right to Life. One of the uh, founders of the Columbus Right to Life Society asked us to house a young lady, which we did from Ireland at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, still good friends today. And so that began in 1975 and moved forward. And it was an education. Our kids, uh, our kids are adopted, Tim and Kelly, mm -hmm. and so now our grandkids. But for our kids to grow up with these mothers and be able to talk to them about their decision what they thought about adoption and what they thought and to see that real life love of a mother that you know she's willing to uh, place the baby you know for the best interest of the baby they so there our kids are very pro adoption obviously mm -hmm. now but it was great for us and great for them mm -hmm. i'm sure that was just an excellent example to the woman that you're housing to see such a loving family in with kids who had been adopted I'm sure that helped influence their decision for choosing life as well. Yeah, I think it did. 
I think yeah. I think it did right. <laughs> and we had a great uh, group not uh, of expectant mothers that formed an adoption support group there, so they could talk among themselves about some had placed for adoption, some had parented, and so it was a great uh, time uh, to to see you know the the living out of God's plan. Mm-hmm. And that was, so we started housing in 75. We continued until our son became a teenager. Uh, we just thought it was not appropriate at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by that time we had started PDHC, which opened its doors on January January 22nd today, 19, uh, seven, eight, 1981. Uh, so it's for over 40 years old. But that's I didn't where, know the anniversaries today Yeah, as well. <laughs> So that's where the adoption support group uh, became uh, very, very effective in talking to women. Um, it, it became a program of PDHC. So, uh, yeah, all of that was happening while we were volunteering. I mean, this was what I was teaching full time at Franklin University at that point. Mm-hmm. Our children were little. Um, you know, Mike was uh, in his law firm. And it was just part of our life, actually. It was <laughs> what we did. Um, and uh, it's amazing how foundational, of course, that all was. Plus, we, we made our marriage encounter weekend in 78. So, so that was really, really powerful for us. You can imagine, obviously, housing pregnant girls is something we did together. And, and Mike uh, could help them if they were interested in adoption. Um, you know, I... That's how I learned how complicated this decision-making is for women, because I was the one that was kind of sitting by their bedside every night. (laughs) And when we could talk during the day, processing with them what they were going through and the difficulty of their decision of of what to do and how to proceed. And, you know, when they didn't, universally, none of them had the support of the father of the child. Uh, And so... Being a single mom, and you're a single mom when you're pregnant as well as after the child is born, how how is that possible, and how can you do that, and how lonely it is, and how complicated? And so that was actually when God taught us very early on, simple answers are just not what's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, the very first girl that we had in was the stoic. We didn't even realize till later the struggle she went through because she came from Ireland, she had to place her baby for adoption. That's why she came here. She had to because the stigma against single parents was so great. Had she brought that baby home, uh, her life, probably in those days in Ireland, they said you probably would not be eligible for marriage uh, Mm. if you were a single mom. So the pressure on her, but she was so stoic. We didn't even realize exactly what she was going through. Our second girl, Susie, she was so conflicted. She also came to us thinking she wanted to make an adoption plan. Uh, she was a second grade teacher at a Catholic grade school. And she just said, I, it's not appropriate for me to be there as their teacher and be a pregnant single mom. And I'm, I, that's not the way it should be. And I want to make an adoption plan. And I don't want to burden my parents Um, And so she came to us thinking she wanted to make an adoption plan, but she was so conflicted. And that's 
really what God used to teach me what now we call the love approach. Yeah, let's talk of that about that. Uh, Mike and Peggy Hartshorn here in the cafe. So the love approach was birthed, so to speak, out of out the work of Susie, that you did? I, as I look back, yeah. out of Susie. Wow. Because um, she just, when we would, I'd be there with her every night, we would just be struggling. She'd be crying. She'd be processing, you know, how, how did she, how did she get to this point and why did she get to this point and how could she, how could she be a single mom? How it, it was impossible. Um, what was her relationship with the father going to be moving forward? What about her relationship with her parents? How was this affecting her job? And, and it's interesting. I remember Mike, I came to him one time and I said, you know, Susie just is so conflicted about making this adoption plan. And I said, well, well, why? It's such a great alternative. We had, were hoping to adopt. We were very pro-adoption. We ended up adopting to mm-hmm. babies whose moms could have had abortion. But neither one of us realized how difficult that decision is. And so anyway, all I could do, as I, I kind of just shorthand of the story, I was so speechless in trying to help her um, that all I could do was keep listening and just processing with her and and um, trying to affirm her and love her through this. So that became the love approach, really. The first step of the love approach, L-O-V-E, is what we now teach uh, in work. anyone working with a pregnant woman. And by the way, it works with your spouse, <laughs> it works with anyone in your life who's in a difficult situation, your children, listen, the first part, listen, and, and just keep asking questions, you know, about feelings, thoughts, wants, values, beliefs. And we say the magic words are, tell me more, tell me more. Mm-hmm. And, and that helps the person really process. And sometimes they're sorting through the options themselves even. And, and I know I don't want to do that, but I think I really have to. And, and so when you believe that the relationship is strong enough and, and they may listen also, going over options with them in a more um, factual way uh, and, and, well, have you thought about this? Could you do that? How, how does that make you feel? And so forth and so on. So it's listen, L, O, options. Mm-hmm. the new vision and value. And here's where the affirmation comes in. You know, Jesus loves you. You know, God will help you. Um, you started out, Dave, by talking about the beauty of the, of the incarnation. How much does God love us? Mm-hmm. And God loves you, despite what you've done. So many people are condemning of themselves at this stage. Um, and you can do it. Yes, you can make that adoption plan if that's what is on your heart or if you're going to be a single mom if that's what you've decided god can provide the graces for you and so that vision is so important and then the e is extended in power with practical help how here's how you can do it we will be standing right with you or i will be whoever the support Mm -hmm. person is Uh, and let's find out what help is available what concrete help and then uh, at our second mother, Susie. Sue, mm-hmm. she uh, uh, did decide to parent, had a 
wonderful baby boy that's become very successful now, mm-hmm. and we're still in contact. And he's with the him. same age as yeah. our, our, our adopted son, son yeah. Tim. Yeah. Yeah. And when we had our 50th wedding anniversary party five years ago, now it's 55 years for us, uh, Susie was there with her son and his wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, and, and Anne, our very first girl who did make the adoption plan from Ireland, of course, they, well, not of course, but in this case, they have been reunited after, they were about after 20 years. Her son. Uh, and yeah. Anne and her husband, Jimmy, came from Ireland to be at his wedding. So, you know, God, God provides so much that we have no idea of. Uh, what, is, what is it going to be in the future? We have to trust. But we, you know, to go back, we really didn't know what we were doing. No. I mean, it was just one <laughs> step at a time. And uh, on the Marriage Encounter Weekend, there's an open apostolic talk. It yeah. talks about, as a couple, to decide what you want to do, you know, just not just work on your relationship, but open an apostolic. And we both wrote those things about marriage encounter is to write. We both wrote that we wanted to get involved more as a couple with uh, right to life and uh, abortion help. And so that's when we host, you know, host besides, you know, we were hosting. So that's when we decided to go to Chicago to a workshop for, uh, abortion AAI. It was the early name of Heartbeat International was Alternatives to Abortion International. And we we went to a workshop, 45 minutes, and learned how to start a pregnancy center. And they just said, <laughs> get a phone, get an office, and start. And so we had five couples that donated money, mm-hmm. and we started. Most the, from yeah, Marriage Encounter yeah, and yeah. Right to Life. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so we started that in January 22nd, 1981. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. What really stands out, we're with uh, Mike and Peggy Hartshorn, and we're talking about their work in uh, the pro-life movement and uh, as well as the, uh, the beginnings of Heartbeat International. What stands out to me, though, it, and John Paul II had talked about this in, um, in the reading that we had earlier, it's so critical to make that investment in, in the other person's life mm-hmm. and, and spend the time. And I see that, though, too, in your relationship with the time that the two of you spent writing letters to each other right. and, and, and taking your time. At that point, I, I see a lot of the love approach in your relationship, even <laughs> though you weren't calling it that all the way back to your courtship. But I, the impetus was there at, at that you. point. Well, really... Um, what we learned on the Marriage Encounter Weekend when we started PDHC and I ended up helping to train or being the trainer for all of our new volunteers. And of course, like Mike said, we did not know what we were doing, but we were relying on the Lord and taking it one step at a time. Yeah. But our relationship and what we had learned in Marriage Encounter about building a relationship really was, the, was what I had to use. It was what I knew. It was all I knew really, to, to help the volunteers know how to communicate with these women that the Lord was sending us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, isn't that amazing when you look back how God puts all these things together and you had no idea at the time. <laughs> you just feel kind of helpless and take one step at a time. And that is the way it is when God calls you to do something. I, I'm looking at the faces of, mm-hmm. of Cam and Amanda and Dave, who all, I believe, in your stories. Mm-hmm came to St. Gabriel Radio and also just took one step at a time. <laughs> sure. 
that, you, know, you that, knew it was a call. That saying that it's really not a trite saying at all, but you know that God does not uh, call the equipped; He equips the call, mm-hmm. and that's certainly what He has done with mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. You know, every step along the way, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. So. Mike Peggy, I think you're bringing out such a beautiful point, the simplicity of just starting Mm -hmm. and just saying yes to the little bit that the Lord is calling you to. I think so many times people can get wrapped up in the big vision of things that maybe there's too too timid to just start, but you were faithful to just that first calling, just just get an office and a phone and right. get started. And we, and you know, that's very true. It was very simple. We got a phone. In those days you had to uh, get a phone number before the phone book came out. And so we got a phone like in August of, of the yes. year before. We knew and we had to be in the phone book when it was published because we wanted to open on January 22nd. And we wanted to be under abortions alternatives, mm-hmm. AA in the phone mm-hmm. book to be the first one. Mm. And so we got a phone number, had a phone put in our bedroom and we didn't know it was going to ring right then. We didn't so, think it would ring till yeah. we advertised it. Right, yeah. And and at least till the phone book came out and people could see it in there. Mm. And Peggy was teaching one night. Well, at, let's uh, tell them how, how it happened to start ringing. Once oh. you got the phone number, right. it went to the information operator. Okay. That's another antique that you probably don't okay. know about. <laughs> if, 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 Cam? <laughs> I think it was 411. If you dialed 411, you got an operator who would say, may I help you? And so if a girl said, you know, I, I'm, I want an abortion clinic or I want an abortion number, we were listed first as abortion alternatives and they got our number. Wow. So we yeah. started getting phone calls from abortion-minded people and and it was on a phone in our bedroom and so every time that and which was on the second every time that phone rang mm-hmm. we had to be running up <laughs> to pick up the phone and we had no training really on exactly what to say. So again you had to listen. Oh, you know, well what we learned was the first question to say if someone said that was, well, tell me about your situation. Mm. Tell me more. And then we could try to say, and th- in those days, we didn't have the pregnancy center open either. So it was a matter of then really listening and saying, you know, well, this is not an abortion clinic, but can I help you with some of those problems that you've told me about? Yes, I think we can help you with that. Mm. So... um <laughs> God really threw us into the mm-hmm. <laughs> into the water. <laughs> no, those, those calls we also, right, th- those were local women. Not it, all of them. No? Because they were calling Columbus, Ohio, because Columbus did have an abortion clinic by that point, and not okay. every place in Ohio did. So, And sometimes they wanted confidentiality. Maybe mm-hmm. they lived in Toledo, but they wanted to go to a clinic in Columbus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were they were from everywhere around. Actually, one of our first calls was from West Virginia. Do you remember Mike? Mm-hmm. Mike uh, Mike was in the bedroom with me, and and the the boyfriend said, "You know, I'm I'm I think he said I'm 17, and my girlfriend is 15, 15 right. and we think she's pregnant, and we want to get married." And we want to know where can we go and get married at our age. Mm. And Mike was in the bedroom and I said, I said, honey, do you know where they can go and get married at that age? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it was and and of course, we didn't know where they could. Well, (laughs) and we wanted to talk about 
options and alternatives sure. and, and have the young man continue mm-hmm. to talk. That's yeah. the O in love approach, right? Right. That's, right. Right. That's the O in love approach, which we didn't, we didn't define at that time or no. But that, yeah. that was a lesson, too, that, you know, the, the factual information is not necessarily the key in the call. The, the most important thing is developing the relationship and letting them know there is help available and mm-hmm. we will find it for you. You know, interestingly, uh, I was listening to another speaker recently, and we don't want to make pregnancy help a hard thing to do at all. And this other speaker was saying, the main thing about pregnancy help is saying, how can I help? Yeah. Those are the magic words. How can I help? And everyone, everyone can use a love approach just by saying, tell me your story. Tell me more. How can I help? Mm. And Heartbeat International, your the phone line's called the option line, right? Yes, our 24-7 call center, which because of our experience with how important a hotline is, when I became president of Heartbeat, um, uh, one of our key goals was a national hotline. And now it's in English and Spanish, mm-hmm. 1-800-712-HELP, 712-4357. And optionline.org. And now, of course, it's internet-based. So we get about 250,000 what we call mission-critical contacts every year. Mm -hmm. And we connect these women, whether they've chatted with us, whether they've called us, whether they've emailed us, uh, with their local pregnancy help center. And they're over now. Remember that early directory had 175 entries. There are over 5,000 entries in that worldwide and over 3,000 for the United States, where we can refer people for help uh, and immediately contact them, actually. I mean, if a woman's calling in real time, she can talk to someone in her local pregnancy center. That, um, excuse me, that phone, <clears throat> excuse me, that phone number again? The phone number is 1-800-712-HELP. And you can remember it seven days a week, 12 months of the year, 1-800-712-HELP. Or pregnancy, pregnancycenters.org also, mm-hmm. or optionline.org. Just thinking of uh, all the folks that have uh, given time to sidewalk counseling, and, and also when uh, they're near an abortion clinic, um, the conversations very often start the way that you just described. Mm-hmm. How can I help? And, and tell me what your situation right. is, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and to begin that conversation, there right. it, it's and there's something so um, fundamental, foundational in human relationships at that level to have that conversation and to enter into each other's lives rather than just sliding a brochure or a phone number, Adam, but to really enter into that relationship, however brief it may be. Mm-hmm. But then I've also, you know, through some of Carol's experiences where, and in the stories that you've shared can go on for years, if not decades, right. because of that first question. Right. You know, t- tell me more. And tell me what's going on. And some amazing miracles, even though and we've had, uh, trying to locate our pregnancy center's uh, next to or in the same area as abortion clinics have had abortion clinic employees come over to become volunteers at pregnancy decision health centers. Love it. Right. And, and even before that, 
they would uh, they would uh, talk to the girls, and if they th- they had a girl that was undecided, to get a referral from an abortion clinic, and so that's building a relationship, and that's the you know the volunteers at the pregnancy to center. It it's a love approach. It's mm-hmm. loving and being open and helping, and that's mm-hmm. you know that's what draws people. And you know, one thing I, I think it's important for our for our listeners now. Really, in a sense, we need to deputize everybody to use the love approach. There are people around you that are considering abortion right now, I'm sure. For those listeners, it could be, um, could be someone even in your family, could be a neighbor, could be a babysitter, could be a person in your parish. Uh, pray that the Lord will somehow let you know that that person needs help. Because right now, over 70% of all abortions are by pill. And the abortion pill is available now online. They're touting what they call self-managed abortions. Just get the pills, do it yourself. Women are stockpiling pills, as we hear. We don't even know what's in some of these pills. Women are taking pills way far into their pregnancy where they could have massive hemorrhages and, and, and babies born alive right there uh, in their own home when they're taking these pills. It's a disaster for women as well as their babies. So, so we, everybody needs to intervene now very quickly. We may not be able to get them to a pregnancy center. Uh, there may only be one phone call or there may only be you that they may say, I think I'm pregnant. Uh, everyone has to be ready to say, how can I help? Tell me your story. What's happening with even, you? Even in the midst of taking the abortion pills, there's a great program through Heartbeat now and the centers that work with Heartbeat to reverse that abortion once yes. it's started. Mm. If they've taken the first pill and it's a two pill process or two group of pills process, if they've taken the first pill and it's amazing, this is how God put that great maternal instinct. So many women know, what have I done? I, I, I wanna stop this, Is it? can I reverse it? They look up reverse. They maybe have heard of abortion pill reversal. Option nine now answers on a different number abortion pill reversal calls it's a network mm-hmm. through heartbeat international and we can we there are 1400 medical providers uh that in this country and around the world that will prescribe a massive dose of progesterone and stick with that woman uh and and in documented 76 percent of cases that progesterone will save the baby there's always a solution for life Right. Mm. right. There's always right. hope. Yeah. There There's is always, always hope. hope. Mm. Amen. Mike and Peggy Hartshorn, thanks for being with us in the cafe. Really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, this we morning. did too. Thank, Thank you. you so Thank much. You. Coming up at 1030, the Respect Life Mass from the Cathedral. And coming up tomorrow, we'll have Dr. Marlon Delatore followed by Carrie Schutz-Daunt and Tina Birch. So be with us tomorrow, 8 a.m. Glory be to the Father into the Son, into the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, a world without end. Amen. Amen. God bless. See you tomorrow morning.